0: Uh, If you want to turn in your Bibles, we are going to be looking at a large chunk of Scripture this morning. Acts chapter 6, verse 8 is where we are starting. If you have a Bible uh, from the chair in front of you, it's page 914. I would encourage you to follow along. I decided to do the reading on my own this morning because. I didn't want to inflict that upon somebody. While we're doing that, uh, just a little word of correction from last week's sermon, and it was thank thank you to uh, those who pointed it out to me. Is uh, I said last week that the Hellenists' complaint against the Hebrews, uh, you know, we were talking about that in Acts chapter six, and that the Hebrews spoke. Hebrew, which some of you adeptly uh, understood and I, that I misspoke, the, the word, they actually spoke Aramaic. Uh, Hebrew, uh, at that point, was basically a, a dead language. So they were actually Aramaic-speaking Jews, not Hebrew-speaking Jews. So thank you for those who pointed that out to me. Uh, Acts chapter six, verse eight. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyreneans and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, "'Who made you a ruler and judge?' This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, "'God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers.'" This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is, a, this is a heavy text, and even just considering the theme of our service this morning, that you are our protector, there are times when it seems that that is not the case. Yet even Stephen knew your protection and your care. Father, may my words be faithful to your word. May our hearts be ready and receptive to your word this morning. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Have You ever heard that phrase? The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. These words were spoken uh, by early church father Tertullian in the late 2nd, early 3rd century. It sounds so awful. The word martyr can mean witness. It also can mean one who gives up their life because of what they're witnessing for. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. It sounds awful and has proven time and time again to be true throughout church history. What is so precious that you would be willing to die for it? Consider that. You don't have to answer it out loud. But what is so precious to you that you would die for it? Maybe some of you think about your loved ones, family members, friends. But what, what belief is so precious to you that you would be willing to die for it? Which of the beliefs that you hold dear would be worth laying your life down for? To say that you would forfeit everything earthly to hold true to it. The passage we read today marks a turning point in the book of Acts. Up to this point, the tenor of the early church's relationship with the city of Jerusalem has largely been favorable, right? We've seen that in a few different uh, situations. Yes, there's been some issues with the, the religious leaders a couple times, but generally they have had favor. The early church had favor with those around them. And in today's passage, the tide begins to turn and Uh, the religious leader's desire to silence the gospel reaches its climax. And at the same time, in this passage, something happens that ensures that the world would never be the same again. Truly, in the most horrific of times, the Lord is planting a seed that will grow His church. Jesus said of Himself and those who follow Him in John chapter 12, verses 24 to 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Today we read a visible example of the seed being planted. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Today we see a visible example of the seed being planted as Stephen's body is buried at the end of this text. We see a scattering that far from killing the movement serves to advance the cause of Christ in a way that carries on to this very day. We meet a man named Saul who hates the cause of Christ. While he trained at the feet of Gamaliel, he does not share the sentiments that we learned of Gamaliel a few cha- or in chapter 5, where Gamaliel says basically, leave these guys alone, because if it's of man, if their movement is of man, it's going to die out. If it's of God, we're not going to be able to stop it. Saul did not share Gamaliel's sentiments, though Gamaliel was his teacher. Saul wanted to destroy this movement. With the rest of our time this morning, I want us to look at a few things. It's a large text, and we're not going to cover everything. Stephen's speech is at the heart of our text, and I want us to learn about a few things. Stephen and the accusations made against him, his speech to the council, the stoning, and the seed of the church. I'm giving you four S's, okay? Stephen, speech, stoning, seed. My prayer is that the Lord would teach our hearts what it means to truly honor Him in all things and bless us with a love for Him that says even if it costs us our lives, the Lord is worth it and He will protect us even in death. If you're here this morning and don't believe in Christ, if you're here you're not even sure what you believe, my prayer is that you would know and understand the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Ask yourself, why is Steve, why does he do this? Why does Stephen subject himself to this? When all it would have taken is for him to say, "No, it's not worth it. I'll stop talking. I'll stop talking about this Jesus." Stephen was full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people, it says. He was one of the seven chosen that we talked about last week to make sure that the Hellenist widows were not being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Luke identified Stephen first in that list, and he called him a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. The fact that he's described as full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs, it's notable because he's the first non-apostle to be doing these things in the book of Acts. First non apostle to be doing it, performing miraculous works, preaching in, in a powerful way. Stephen also stands as proof, along with Philip, who we're going to talk about for the two weeks, uh, well, the 23rd and 30th of uh, April. Stephen stands as proof that being called in one area, he was the administrator making sure that the Hellenist widows weren't being neglected, right? That doesn't mean that was all he was allowed to do. Stephen was able to to serve in multiple areas. He was a faithful public proclaimer of the gospel. And his ministry brings a dispute with this group from the synagogue of the freedmen. Most likely, do you have your Bibles open still? You should. He has this dispute with this, the people from the synagogue of the freedmen. It seems like all those names mentioned there, like in verse 8 and 9, probably comprised one synagogue. Uh, the synagogues were and are still different from the temple. Synagogue was a place of teaching, a place of community for, for the Jewish people. And the freedmen were Jewish people who had been enslaved and were granted freedom. And it says in the text that they couldn't withstand the spirit with which Stephen spoke. They could not retort his argument. They couldn't refute his arguments. His case was compelling. The power of the Lord was evident in his ministry. So, as people are wont to do in times like these, they decide to go on the attack. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be alarmed. Do not be surprised if and when people resort to personal attacks or false allegations when you share the truth of Christ. It's not uncommon. They don't like what you have to say. I'm not, again, I, I try to make this as clear as possible, as often as possible. If people are angry at you because you're being nasty to them, that's different. But if you are sharing the truth of Christ, oftentimes, even if you share it in the kindest way possible, their response is going to be a visceral attack on your character, on your intelligence, whatever it may be. Don't be surprised. That's the pattern we see in Scripture over and over and over again. But remember, what we believe is true. What we believe is real. We're not here for fairy tale hour. We are here because Christ is risen. The man at the end of today's passage, Saul of Tarsus, the guy who's approving this death and dragging men and women out of their homes and putting them in prison, he would later say, I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What we have to give is the hope of the world. If it remains silent, there is no hope offered. If we face opposition for what we say and what we believe, then so be it. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. A group of people are stirred up. They secretly instigate these false witnesses to make accusations against Stephen. They say that he's blaspheming. He's speaking against Moses. He's speaking against God. That he never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple. They're pointing to the temple. He never stops talking bad about the temple and Moses and God. That Jesus is going to destroy the temple and change the customs handed down by Moses. These these accusations, do they sound similar to you? Or or sound like like something you've heard before? They're a a lot like the accusations that were against Jesus. Ultimately, it would be the charge of blasphemy that led to Jesus' death. Was Stephen guilty? Was Stephen guilty? No. No, because what he was saying was true. Their understanding was incorrect, but there were nuggets of truth in the accusations against him. Often the most dangerous lies are the ones that have pieces of truth in them. Far from speaking against God by bringing the gospel, Stephen spoke for God. But it is true that Jesus came as the fulfillment of all that was promised in the law and the prophets. It is true That anybody who was relying on the temple, law-keeping, self-righteousness, anybody who was saying, like, no, we can't lose that because that shows how good we are, how faithful we are, that if that was going to be their hope, they were wrong. And then Stephen was speaking against the temple because he was pointing people to a better righteousness, a fulfillment of all that was spoken by Moses and the law and the prophets. Jesus himself told the apostles, remember when when right before Jesus is arrested and killed, they're around the temple and the the apostles are saying to him, man, look how beautiful that temple is. You see these beautiful stones? Herod Herod redid this thing. Isn't it beautiful? What does Jesus say to them? Yes, indeed. Very beautiful. He says, do you see this place? There's not going to be one stone left standing on top of another before long. Even as they brought Stephen before the council, this one that they so opposed, what do we see in Acts 6.15 about what they see? All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Like Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. Like Jesus at the transfiguration. Like an angelic messenger of God. The glory of God shone on the face of Stephen in front of that council which makes what's about to happen all the more remarkable. That they all looked on and said, we see the glory of God and we're going to kill this guy. As was customary in the trial before counsel, the defendant is given the opportunity to reply to the charges made against him. The high priest invites Stephen to reply to the charge of blasphemy against the law, the temple, and ultimately against God. And so we see, chapter 7, his speech. We could have broken this up. I really think it's it's supposed to be meant as one unit for us to see the essence of Stephen's speech. I'm not going to break down every detail of this speech, but he begins, much like Peter has done previously, with a familial address. Brothers and fathers. Listen, brothers and fathers, I am a Jew as well. Now, his speech is not going to end that way, but it starts that way. And their charge, remember, is that Stephen has dishonored Moses. And he's dishonored the temple. I'm going to give away the ending here. Stephen wants to show them that he hasn't dishonored the temple. He hasn't dishonored Moses. But that they were the latest in a long line of Jewish people who profess to know God with their lips but deny Him by their actions. People who are not on the side of God. They say they're on the side of God, but they're actually willing to kill God's messengers. So he briefly recounts the history of Israel to the council. He starts with the call and blessing of Abraham. God promised that he'd gonna, he was going to bring Abraham to the land of his choosing, that his offspring would possess that land, though Abraham had no children at the time. God told Abraham that his offspring would suffer in a foreign land for 400 years and then return to the promised land. God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, man's pledge of faithfulness to Yahweh. Isaac was born and Abraham circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac had Jacob and Jacob became the father of the patriarchs. So far, so good. All in the council. Amen. Amen. Yes. Yes. Something everyone could agree with. Stephen continues by saying that the patriarchs sold their brother Joseph into slavery into Egypt. But God was with him and he became the means of Israel's salvation during a time of famine as he had risen to second in command under Pharaoh. All of Israel ends up going down to Egypt and is saved because of the provisions Joseph had made. Joseph saved his brothers who had rejected him. God brought about the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham through Moses. After another Pharaoh rose up, the people of Israel had multiplied greatly, and this Pharaoh is scared of them. And so he treats them harshly. He enslaves the Israelites. And then he wants the children, the male children of the Israelites, killed But Moses' life was preserved, and he was raised in the family of Pharaoh. He then tries to intercede on behalf of one of his brothers, one of his Israelite brothers. And the response is, who made you a ruler and judge over us? So Moses fled to Midian, living in exile for 40 years. There he became the father of two sons, and then the Lord calls him back. He appears to him in a burning bush. He tells him, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He calls him to go back and set his people free. The holy God had seen his people's affliction and he was going to set them free through Moses, their deliverer. Moses then saved his brothers who had rejected him. 735 and 36. You got your Bibles open? This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses told them that after him, the Lord would raise up another prophet like him from among their midst. And Peter has already told us in Acts chapter 3. Who is that? I want to make sure you're listening. Who's the other prophet like Moses? It's a good church answer. Jesus. After this miraculous deliverance, Moses saved his brothers who had rejected him. Moses led the people for 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years because of their disobedience, their unfaithfulness to God. Moses gave them living oracles, Stephen says. Living oracles. He gave them the words of life. He got them from God on Mount Sinai. He gave them to Moses to give to the people. And while he was doing that, what were they doing? They were worshiping idols. They were making for themselves a golden calf to worship, saying, this is our God. And beyond that, we see that that God even handed them further over, much like we see in Romans 1. Because of their heart of idolatry, He handed them over. They're worshiping the stars. We have this quote from Amos. They're worshiping foreign gods says in verse 39, Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They are condemning words. He goes on quoting Amos. Rather than coming back to their senses, they, they were handed over further. They were handed over to their sin. They were sent into exile in Babylon ultimately because of their wickedness. These were a people who had the testimony of Abraham. They had the testimony of Joseph. They had the testimony of Moses. Stephen says you had the ark of the testimony. You carried around this tent in the wilderness. What was inside that tent? The ark of the covenant. You built a temple that was supposed to be a testimony. They had the history of David who wanted to build the, the temple, but he couldn't. His son Solomon builds it. But even as it was built, Solomon himself acknowledged, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Stephen himself echoes this by saying, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He quotes Isaiah 66:1 1 and 2, saying, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That was a lot. I just said a lot of things. So I'm going to stop here and sum it up in a paragraph. This is what Stephen's saying. This is his speech. You want to put me on trial for profaning this temple? Then get in line behind all your forefathers who rejected those sent to them for their salvation. You think I have profaned this temple? You think I have rejected the law of Moses? Far from it. I stand here bearing witness to the one in whom the promises to Abraham are fulfilled, whom Joseph foreshadowed, The one Moses longed for and promised. Whom the temple pointed toward. A better priest. A lasting salvation. Real forgiveness from sins. Circumcision not outward, but circumcision of the heart. You are so worried about this building. But you pay no mind to the God this building was made for. This building. This nation was meant to be a light to the world, an invitation to know the one true God, but you have made it a monument to yourselves and hated those who warned you to repent. You are just like your forefathers. I think we're supposed to get the impression between verses 50 and 51 that they were... The the council was getting the idea that this speech was not going the way they were hoping. Maybe even we're supposed to insert in there some murmuring among the council. Maybe even some yelling out like, silence, stop, stop saying these things. They knew where Stephen was taking this speech. And so then he goes there. You, he, doesn't, he, no, he no longer says brothers and fathers, you stiff-necked people. Is that a familiar phrase? Moses called the people of Israel a stiff-necked people. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I just want to say real quickly, Stephen could sound like really, really harsh, right? Like, man, that's tough. Harshness is needed at times. Harshness is needed when those who think they're okay with this mask of religion, outward appearance. Jesus spoke harshly to those who thought they were fine. Peter spoke harshly on the day of... When I say harshly, I mean direct, pointed, and calling out their sin. And on the day of Pentecost, many were cut to the heart. These people were also cut to the heart. Do you know that? That word, enraged, some of your translations might say, cut to the quick. Just like their forefathers who persecuted the prophets, so they had done to Jesus. They killed those who announced the coming of the Messiah beforehand, and now they killed the Messiah. They betrayed and murdered the Messiah. They said they cared about the law and the temple, They had all vestiges of outward religion, but they did not care to keep the law and they did not worship the God of the temple. I've had the opportunity to say this a lot the last six or seven weeks, but I'll say it again. Having the look of religion means nothing if your heart is far from God. Stephen says that these people were uncircumcised in heart and ears. They had the outward look, but their hearts were filled with idolatry, just like their forefathers. They would read the story of the Exodus and say, thank God we're not like that people. They would put themselves on the side of Moses, themselves on the side of Joseph, themselves on the side of the prophets, themselves on the side of those who worship truly. And Stephen is saying, you're on the other side. You look good, but your hearts are dead. And that's a warning for us. You look good, but your hearts are dead. Is a dangerous place to be. We need to examine ourselves. Is this true of us? The nation of Israel, generally, not entirely, took every opportunity to wander from worship of God to worship of idols. Worship of self. The temple in this passage. You know what it stood as a tribute to? Them, their authority, their greatness. That's why they hated when it was threatened. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, a light to the world. And they had turned it into a den of robbers because we love to elevate things that make much of us. And we want to kill anything and anyone who threatens our kingdom. What's your heart in this matter? Is it love for the look of religion Love for self-righteousness and self-acclaim? Or has the Lord graciously shown you that your self-righteousness is insufficient? That you do not exist to bring glory to yourself, but to Him. That He has provided you with everything you need for life and godliness. That all of this comes by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the praise of His glory. And so, at Stephen's words, the council becomes enraged. They grind their teeth. They are, they are angry beyond measure. No longer will the warning suffice. No longer will the flogging suffice. He must die. And he must die now. The charge was blasphemy, and Stephen puts the nail in his own coffin. When he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen seals his own fate with those words. Stephen did not try to get out of the fate that he knew was about to befall him. At his trial, Jesus had said, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. At, on his trial. Do you know that this, the use Stephen has here son of man? Only time in the Bible that it's used by somebody, or in the New Testament, that it's used by somebody other than Jesus. This, this title for uh, one who comes as a symbolic, not symbolic, but a representative of man. One who makes himself low for the good of his people. And Stephen is saying, I see the son of man, the right hand of God, suffering saints, While you may not visibly see this right now, take comfort because it's no less true. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Death could not hold him. He was victoriously raised from the grave. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He ever lives to intercede between man and God. He is with his people and he is for his people. New hearts come by His work. Desire to please Him comes by His work. And He does not abandon His brothers and sisters. Even if you cannot see it right now, the Son of Man is at the right hand of God. Caring for His beloved. Watching over His beloved. Joseph had rescued them in an earthly sense, despite the rebellion of his brothers. Moses had done the same. Jesus rescues and changes the rebellious into new creations. And He promises to be with His new creations until they see Him face to face. He will be with you every day until you see Him face to face. Even in trial. Even in suffering. Even in death, if it must be so. For His name's sake, Jesus sees and He knows and He is with you. Stephen finds great comfort in what he sees. But did you note that what he sees is not Jesus seated at the right hand of God? Did you notice that? Anybody notice that? What does he see? Jesus is doing what? Standing at the right hand of God. Interesting. Is there significance to this? I'm going to say yes. Yes. Jesus stood as if to affirm Stephen's testimony, to give the amen to Stephen's word of testimony. Jesus stands. Jesus stands as a reminder that all wrongdoing will be judged. He stands as the judge. He stands to say that I am the judge of all the earth. Who is going to be vindicated in this matter? Not those people who said, oh, we're just trying to fulfill Leviticus twenty four sixteen and stone the blasphemer. They would not be vindicated. Stephen would be vindicated. Jesus will come as judge one day, and he will execute judgment on all wickedness. Either by there's two ways that Jesus comes to make to to work. Uh, yeah, sorry, to overcome wickedness. He comes as those uh, to those who trust in him. And makes peace by the blood of his cross? Or by sentencing those who reject him to eternal punishment? God has sent his word out many times and in many ways. But what should be done with the one who rejects the offer of the gospel? Stephen was reminded that Jesus, in his last moments, Jesus will make everything right. None of his suffering would be wasted. The council takes him out of the city. Stephen would bear reproach outside the camp, just like his Savior. They stoned him. Presiding over the stoning was a young man named Saul. They laid their garments at his feet. Why did they do that? I think that symbolizes Saul's authority over this situation. Earlier in Acts, we read that they were bringing their offerings and laying them where? At the apostles' feet, right? Same thing is happening here. They are showing that Saul is their their authority. They were laying their garments at Saul's feet so that they could stone Stephen. And his last earthly words echo his saviors. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he cries out in a loud voice. Just like Luke records Jesus crying out in a loud voice in 2346 of Luke. Stephen, racked with pain, being stoned. At this point, he was also part of the stoning process. I don't want to get too much into it. But part of the stoning process, the beginning of it, was throwing them off of a a high ledge. That was the beginning of stoning. So he's been thrown off of a ledge and is being pelted with stones. And his last words are, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's powerful. Saul is right there. And Stephen pleads for mercy for them before the Lord. Consider how the Lord has loved his enemies. Enemies like us, we too are called to pray for those who persecute us, to love them. And as Saul lends his approval to this heinous act, I'm landing the plane in a second. There's, there's a lot. Thanks for bearing with me. There's a lot in this passage. As Saul lends his approval to this heinous act and Stephen dies, a great persecution arises in Jerusalem. This is the turning point of the book of Acts. No longer will this movement be generally accepted. No longer will they have favor with all the people. Remember what Gamaliel said in chapter 5. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. As Stephen's body is buried and devout men make lamentation over him. Note note on verse 2 there of chapter 8, devout men burying him. That was a rarity. Criminals who were executed did not get a devout man's burial. Stephen's body is buried, and there is every reason to think that this upstart group should shut their mouths and try to go back to business as usual. Just forget it ever happened. Let's be scattered, and let's just try to live a normal life the rest of our lives. But Stephen's buried body serves as a seed by which the church scatters and grows. Far from killing the movement, it accelerates the movement. Persecution does not silence the faithful. It spreads the gospel. To this very day, many brothers and sisters put their lives on the line daily for the cause of Christ. Millions have given their lives for the name of Jesus over the last 2,000 years. Maybe some in this room right now will be called to lay down your life for Jesus. And I want to be really clear, Stephen did not go to the council that day trying to get killed, but he did go in desiring to be faithful, even if it cost him his life. But the Lord Jesus and being found in Jesus eternally is of such infinite value to his people that even if it means a little suffering for his name, it is worth it. He is worth it. The church would not die, and it will not die. The gates of hell will not prevail against her because Jesus is the Lord of the church. Jesus will not be defeated. As today's passage ends, Saul is ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women to prison. Stephen seemed like he would have been a great guy to get the gospel to the world. And in some ways, he was. He propelled the church outward. But one can only wonder what might become of this Saul guy. A violent opponent of the gospel. God's grace could never reach the likes of him, could it? We stand as a testimony that the grace of God reaches all. The likes of all. Praise God for his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Stephen as he followed in the footsteps of his Savior and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And may it be in our lives that you would grow our love for you in such a way that we would be able to say that to have you is better than having all the treasures of this world. And if it comes down to a choice between having you, or having riches, or having uh, popularity, or having uh, many, many friends, being well thought of, or even keeping our lives, that we would see Jesus as of surpassing value. And that you would strengthen us and give us the grace to stand for him in all situations. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us when we were your enemies. We were, like Saul is in this passage, violent opposers, however it looked, religious opposers, anti-religious opposers, all of us have been Saul. And your mercy has found the chief of sinners. We thank you for that. And we thank you that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Jesus' name. Amen.